0: I will ask that you open your Bibles with me to the first chapter of the first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1. Now last week we took some time to look at each one of these Hebrew words that are used in the first verse of the Bible. And we discovered that there's a a hint there at God's triune nature. The word heavens corresponds to space, as we think of it, one of the basic components of our universe. Earth corresponds to matter, and beginning corresponds to time. And there we have the three components of our tri-universe, if you will, space, mass, and time, all distinct, but also all connected. We also built what I think is a pretty solid case for approaching the book of Genesis as a record of actual historical events, as opposed to a collection of allegories. The book of Genesis is referenced over 200 times in the New Testament alone, and not one of those references contain any hint that the author regarded Genesis as anything but a historical record. So when we approach Genesis as history, our position is strengthened by the testimony of these New Testament authors. And since we have decided to take Genesis as a serious historical account of beginnings, the next step is figuring out what the text actually says. And this is where we'll pick up this week. What does the Genesis account of creation actually teach? There are some theories that attempt to mingle the account of Genesis with man's word, the evolutionary or geological ages. And we'll take a look at two of these theories this morning, and we'll try to sort our way through them and figure out what the text is actually trying to communicate to us. Let's read Genesis 1, verse 1 through 5. This is where we'll be spending our time this morning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Then God said, Let there be light, and there was light, and God saw the light, that it was good, and God divided the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, so the evening and the morning were the first day." That covers from the very beginning, from before time, there was God, up to the end of the first day of the creation week. In verse 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God speaks into existence the basic components of our universe, that space-mass-time continuum. The matter had not been formed into material bodies at this point, and verse 2 actually describes the creation at that stage. Now, verse 2, the earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep. Now, with no gravitational force yet acting on these constituent elements of the universe, they existed only in this formless mass of elements. There was no form To them yet. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters or the face of the deep. There is some immeasurable depth to this mass of elements. And the Holy Spirit is there energizing this mass in order to organize it, to form it into the spherical shape that we recognize as Earth today. From that state it seems that the rest of the creation narrative unfolds. And based on the chronology of Genesis, when we put together all of the genealogies that are recorded, we can estimate that roughly 6 to 10,000 years have elapsed since the creation of Adam to today. There's not an exact number for this, but the consensus of serious biblical scholars is around this six to 10,000 year mark. They differ in their exact conclusions and the exact dates, but they all fall in that general range. And usually it's towards the lower end of that range, towards the 6,000 year mark. Among those who arrive at this biblical chronology for creation are Josephus Kepler, Luther, Lightfoot, Hales, Playfair, Lippmann, and many others. Now, as time went on, geologists began to make discoveries about these layers of sediments in the Earth's crust that contain fossils of prehistoric plants and animals. These layers of sediment were supposed by scientists to be laid down by natural processes over long geological ages. And this is operating under the assumption of uniformitarianism. And it's just the belief that physical processes have always functioned in the past as we observe them today. And that assumption is why they need so many millions of years to make things happen. Because the processes that we observe today are not creative. They're not creative. They are destructive. The law of entropy is certainly at play. You know, everything wears out our shoes wear out, our clothes wear out, things die. Entropy is at play. These are not creative processes, but destructive processes. That's why they need so many millions of years to get anything done. Then, after this idea of millions of years started coming onto the scene, in the early 19th century, Thomas Chalmers proposed and began teaching what's called the gap theory in order to try and bridge this discrepancy between the supposed geological ages of time and the biblical chronology of creation. And that was the idea. He was bridging the gap between these two worldviews. They concede that the primeval creation of Genesis 1-1 may have occurred billions of years ago. That's the position of the gap theory. The earth existed in this primary form until Satan's rebellion triggered a judgment of God that fell on the earth. And at that time, they say that earth was Satan's domain. And that judgment from God caused the earth to become without form and void, as described in verse 2, except they would translate it as becoming wasted and desolate because of that judgment. Right off the bat, we have a problem because the Bible nowhere talks about a judgment on the world before Adam. We can infer that Satan sinned before Adam sinned, but that's really the extent to which we have anything in the Bible. It, it just stops there. There's no speak of Lucifer's flood, which they call it. So the gap theory attempts to pigeonhole these geological ages between the first and second verse of Genesis 1. And the thought was, by doing this, they can let the geologists have all of the deep time they want, and they can still maintain that the scriptural account is accurate. Now, it's, it's a nice thought, but it doesn't really work out. There are major problems that come with that concession The geological age system is essentially synonymous with the evolutionary system, since the rock layers are used to date the fossils, and the fossils are used to date the rock layers. Therefore, the acceptance of geological ages is invariably followed by the acceptance of some form of evolutionary thought. The Gap Theory is also built on a self-defeating premises. Though the the Gap Theory seeks to provide a biblical explanation of these geological ages, it cannot do so because the very idea of geological ages is derived from a uniformitarian philosophy, this idea that everything continues as it has been. The Gap Theory is based on catastrophism. Again, worldviews in conflict. Uniformitarianism in conflict with catastrophism. And catastrophism, just the idea that huge cataclysms have shaped the world as we see it today, not natural processes through long periods of time. You see, the gap theory still invokes a catastrophe. It's just before the recreation that they see as the creation week. They're, they don't mesh. Further, God's judgment on the earth that they read into the text is said to take place after the geological ages of the gap theory that it seeks to explain. The judgment comes after the ages which are supposed to account for the fossils. The judgment on the earth makes it without form and void. How do the fossils make it through that judgment in such pristine condition? If that judgment came after the fossils were supposedly laid down, all of that evidence should have been destroyed in the judgment that made the earth formless. Along with these logical challenges, the gap theory is also met with theological challenges. Since an explanation for the sediment layers must also explain the fossils to some degree, fossils are dead things. A prerequisite condition to becoming a fossil is that you're dead. Therefore, death, disease, and disease is seen in the fossils. Death, disease, suffering, they suppose all came before the sin of Adam. Adam wasn't created until the creation week. These geological ages of sin, death, and suffering, or I'm sorry, death and suffering, are put between the first and second verses. That is a problem. You cannot place the existence of death and disease before the creation of Adam because the Bible clearly teaches that death came as a result of sin and sin entered the world through Adam. And I would point you to Romans 5.12, 5.14, First Corinthians fifteen twenty one. I will give it one thing. The name for it is incredibly descriptive, the gap theory. Because that is what it, what it encompasses is a gap. Because there's nothing said about it. It's just squeezed into these the space between these two verses. It's a whole theory based on what the Bible doesn't say. That's a dangerous foundation to lay. And in my opinion, this is a compromised position. Now, please understand that I'm not saying this is a salvific issue. I'm not saying that we can't be brothers and sisters in Christ if you hold to the gap theory interpretation of Genesis 1 and 2. Sure we can, and I'd love to talk to you about it and see your thoughts on it if you do hold to this. But it's the first little crack in the foundation, which is the first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis. It's that first crack. It's the first concession. So that is the logical and theological argument against the gap theory, but we'll look at the textual arguments as we continue to move along. And I'll kind of warn you in advance that this discussion has to venture in some degree to a technical side. You know, there are some structures in the original language that help us uncover the meaning of the text. And I'm not a Hebrew scholar, so it's not going to be too crazy. I promise it will be understandable. But try to hang with me as we see what the text actually says. So let's look at these first two verses again. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep. We'll stop there for now. In the text of the King James translation, verse 2 begins with the conjunction, and. And the earth was without form and void. That doesn't appear in a lot of the modern translations, and even in my New King James that I'm using, the and does not appear there. It just goes straight into, the earth was without form. That and is present in the Hebrew. Um, It is a conjunction there, and it is, What that tells us is the second verse is logically and chronologically connected to the first verse. That precludes the ability to stick ages of time in between those verses. Now, I don't know how much time elapsed between the first and second verses, But we're not talking about the difference between a few minutes and a few hours. We're talking about the difference between maybe a few hours and millions and millions and millions of years. That is not a quantitative difference, but a qualitative difference. If I told you I would pay you back in 20 years, I owed you a debt. I said, I'd, I'll pay you back in 20 years. You'd be like, okay, well, that's, that's a while, but I can stick it out. If I told you I can pay you back in uh, 4 million years or so, that's not just a quantitative difference, a qualitative difference. You know, I'm never getting that money back. So <clears throat> that's the point I'm trying to make. The second verse is linked to the first verse. It says the earth was, and was is the Hebrew verb of being, hayetha. Gap theorists tried to translate this word as became, so that the verse reads, and the earth became without form and void. And that's just to suggest a change of state from the original perfect creation in verse one to this chaotic condition of the earth described in verse two. It should be noted that this translation is grammatically permissible, but it's highly unlikely in this context. And the Hebrew language is very, very dependent on context. Just like with any language, the words surrounding any given word give it so much meaning. And we'll get back into that when we come to the word yom, So it is true that hayetha can be used to denote a change of state if the context warrants that. But in 98% of its occurrences, this verb is simply translated was. And that's why the King James translators and every other standard translation chooses to translate this verb was. In short, while it's grammatically permissible, to translate it as became, that doesn't mean that it should be translated that way. And based on the context, it should not. But even if you do render it as the earth became without form and void, and you suppose that it designated a change of state, it could very well be referring to the state assumed by the earth directly after that divine creation of verse 1. There's nothing in that rendering, even if you take it that way, that makes it necessary to have a long period of time between the verses. And absolutely nothing in its context necessitates any sort of judgment to be inserted there. A plain reading of the text and a technical reading of the text arrive at the very same conclusion, that verse 2 provides a description of the state of creation directly following that creative act of verse 1. Without form and void. The earth here is being described as without form and void. In the Hebrew, it's tohu wabohu. To make this phrase better fit with the gap theory, their proponents will translate tohu wabohu As ruined and desolate. And that's implying a judgment that left the world in this chaotic and ruined condition. And to back up this idea, they'll assert that God, being perfect, would never create the universe in a chaotic state. And this actually sounds rather ironic, considering that the fossil record has chaos written all over it and they will often point to isaiah 45:18 which says that god did not create the earth in vain same word tohu who formed it to be inhabited and that's the opposite of void or empty god did not create the earth in vain who formed it to be inhabited and we'll come back to that this interpretation of verse 2 is forced and unnatural to translate it as wasted and desolate. The the word tohu occurs 20 times in the Old Testament and is translated in the King James Version over 10 different ways. Those are including vanity, confusion, empty place, nothing, and so on. The proper translation depends heavily on the context of its usage. The context of Genesis 1-2 lends to this translation without form. That's exactly how the King James scholars rendered it. And that's the best translation here, without form. Now concerning that verse Isaiah 45-18, the best translation for tohu there is in vain, just as it's translated. Slightly different than we have In Genesis 1 2. Paraphrasing, that verse in Isaiah can be read God did not create the earth to be forever unformed and uninhabited. He formed it to be inhabited. And there's certainly no contradiction there with the Genesis account. He didn't create the earth to forever be formless and empty, He created it for man, and He created it to be inhabited. Sure, creation wasn't perfect in the sense that it was complete at that point, but it was perfect for his immediate purpose as step one of God's six-day plan. And that next verse, Isaiah forty-five nineteen, also uses the word tohu, and it's correctly translated in vain. Without form and void... Void is the Hebrew bohu, meaning empty, uninhabited, or as it's translated here, void. It should be apparent that this creation did not house any life at this stage of being formless and void. And it was therefore unfilled. And that's another rendering of this bohu. Again, verse 2 is providing a description of the state of creation Directly following that creative act of verse one, it continues, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. The English word face makes it sound like there's some kind of form to this matter. But this Hebrew word can also be translated and is often translated as presence. It's not the face of a sphere yet, but darkness is on the mere presence of the deep. The deep simply referring to this watery matrix that then constituted creation. There's some sort of depth to it. What exactly that looks like, we don't know. And the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Face is the same word that's translated face in that last sentence. Darkness was on the face of the deep. And again, it means the presence of this watery matrix. This is a fascinating sentence because up to now, it seems that God the Father has been the focus. But now the focus shifts from the Father to the Holy Spirit. And it tells us that The Spirit was hovering about this depth of material. There are only a couple of other places that we see the word that's translated hovering here in the Bible. The first is here in Genesis. The second is Deuteronomy 32.11. And in the King James, that reads, As an eagle stirreth up her nest, fluttereth, that's our word, fluttereth over her young. So there it's translated flutter. We see it again used in Jeremiah 23, 9. My heart within me is broken because of the prophets. All my bones shake. The word there is translated shake. So there's certainly a type of motion that's being described here. It's not like a passive hovering but it's a quick side to side movement. It's like he's vibrating over his creation. So what is this trying to tell us? Well, it seems that God, the Holy Spirit, is energizing his creation. He is the source of the energy and he's essentially creating waves through this vibration throughout his entire universe. What does a vibration do? It creates waves, sound waves, and other kinds of waves. I would suggest that what we see here is essentially the introduction of the gravitational force as we know it today. We've already seen the introduction of the nuclear forces when God created space, mass, and time. That's how these atoms and elements in creation can actually cohere to each other. Now, gravity is introduced. Did you know that gravity behaves as a wave? Gravitational waves. It does. And so it would follow logically that at this point, these elements were gathered together to form the familiar sphere of the earth, That we know. This would also seem to allow for some kind of rotation of the earth, which would be useful in marking that first day that immediately follows in verse 3. And as we continue to move through this creation narrative, verses 3 through 5 introduce us to light and this concept of day and night. Let's read verses 3 through 5 again. Then God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw the light, that it was good. And God divided the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. So the evening and the morning were the first day. There's another theory that attempts to accommodate the geological ages into the biblical narrative by saying that these creation days that we see throughout this account are not days as we would think of them, being 24-hour periods of time, but rather they're long, indefinite periods of time, or ages, eons. This is called the day-age theory. It also runs into the same theological problems as the gap theory, namely that's that the fossil record is proposed to have been laid down before sin and death entered the world. And as we all know, in order to be a fossil, you have to be dead. This is inconsistent with the biblical account of death entering the world by Adam. And I want to read you real quick those verses I pointed out earlier. Romans 5, 12. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men, because all sinned. Coming down to verse 14. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. And then in Romans 8, verses 18 through 23. This is Paul writing, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly awaits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, Not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. A common argument that we see for the inclusion of the fossils before sin, people will say that the law of sin and death only applied to man. Therefore, the rest of the animal kingdom experienced death before sin came into the world. That's the argument. The problem is, well, Romans 8. (laughs) Romans 8, 18 through 23, refer to creation and those redeemed, the sons of God, as being distinct from each other. And both of those things are affected by the entrance of sin and death into the world. We can't say that only man was affected when Adam sinned. The whole creation fell with him. Finishing up there in Romans 8 at verse 22, for we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. Not only that, but we also, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. So it's very clear from Scripture that sin entered through Adam. And with sin came death. The premise of the day-age theory depends largely on the interpretation of the Hebrew word yom as something other than a literal 24-hour day. Now, I want you to ask yourself a question. If the author of Genesis was trying to communicate that these were literal 24-hour days, what kind of language would he use to do so? how would he try to communicate these literal 24-hour days if that's what he's trying to communicate? You'd likely come to the conclusion that the author would probably use language very similar to what is actually written in Genesis 1. And we could likely agree that if the author wished to communicate these as long, indefinite ages of time, he could have done so much more clearly And effectively. And a closer examination of the Hebrew yom would lead us to the same conclusion. But in order to properly determine what yom means here, we need three critical pieces of information. One, what range of meanings do the lexicons give for the word yom? Two, what is the context? of yom in Genesis 1, and how does that determine its meaning? The third piece of critical information, what is the theological understanding of yom? In other words, what does other scripture say about it? First, the lexical approach. There are a range of definitions given for the Hebrew word yom, and that's much the same as there are many possible definitions for our English word, day. It can mean a period of time, even a point in time. It can mean a 24-hour day, or just the daylight portion of a day. Those are all possible meanings for day in this passage. Now, it's up to context to determine which of those definitions we should select. Contextual. Just like in English, the context in which day is used will heavily determine its proper meaning. If I say, back in my father's day, that's referring to a period of time. If I say, the battle lasted four days, that's referring to a specific 24-hour day, especially because that number is attached to it. Four days. If I say, I worked all day, I'm talking about the daylight portion of the day. You see, it's the same word. It's placed in different contexts. It just so happened, of course, not by chance, that the author provided us with an abundance of textual clues in Genesis 1. First, there's a number attached to each of these references to the days of creation. The first day, the second day, the third day, and so on. Second, the day is defined as a cycle of evening and morning. And thirdly, the first day is characterized by God dividing light from darkness and calling the light day and the darkness night. These are all contextual clues as to the intent behind this word day. Now, don't let what I'm about to say confuse you, but there's actually two different uses of day in verse 5. Bear with me. When God called the light day, that refers to the daylight portion of a day. It's contrasted with night, day and night. And when the first day is concluded, that refers to that entire 24-hour period, the daylight and the nighttime. So either way you slice it, though, that's talking about literal, defined periods of time. And don't get tripped up with, is it actually 24 hours? Is it a little bit more, a little bit less? We do have evidence that suggests that light the actual speed of light has been slowing down throughout time. That is now scientifically validated. So, yeah, it's possible that these are just slightly off from our current 24-hour days, but that's not an issue. Uh, It would be by a couple hours or so. So it is this 24-hour period, a cycle Of evening and morning. So that's our contextual clues. What about theological? What do the other scriptures say about these days of creation? Since the Bible is the best commentary on itself, we should look to it for clarification here. One of the biggest problems for those attempting to define these days as geological ages doesn't even lie in Genesis, but Exodus. Exodus 20, verse 11. This is God giving the Ten Commandments. Starting in verse 7, and I'll read through 10 first. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. There's our context. He's giving the Ten Commandments. He says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work, you nor your son nor your daughter nor your male servant nor your female servant nor your cattle nor your stranger who is within your gates. He is clearly relating a week of ordinary human days Here, Then in verse 11, God says, For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. That is clearly teaching a literal six-day creation week from the mouth of God. Exodus 31:17 also says concerning the Sabbath It is a sign between me and the children of Israel forever for in 6 days the Lord made the heavens and the earth and on the 7th day he rested and was refreshed Again an ordinary work week God certainly didn't have to take 6 days to create the entire universe He could have just spoken it all into existence in one instant. In Mark 2:27, Jesus teaches that the Sabbath was made for man. The Sabbath was made for man. God chose to stretch out his creation over 6 days, resting on the 7th in order to establish a pattern for us to follow. He did that for us. And I, for one, am thankful that we don't have a six-eon work week. I don't think anyone would enjoy that. So yes, it seems that we are encountering literal days in the Genesis account of creation. And if you lived under a rock your whole life and weren't influenced in any way by the science of naturalistic philosophers you would naturally come to the conclusion that these are ordinary days if nothing else had influenced you. And as we start to wrap up this morning, I want to point out one more fascinating construct in these first three verses. It seems that each person of the Holy Trinity is being emphasized in relation to the creation of each type of force we've observed in the universe. In verse 1, the Father is pictured creating the space-mass-time universe. So along with this creation of matter, the mass component, would come the creation of nuclear forces that hold the nucleus of an atom together. The strong nuclear force is what allows the protons and neutrons to cohere. Naturally, we know that like charges repel. If like charges repel, the nucleus of an atom makes no sense. You can't have positive protons being bundled together. The strong nuclear force accounts for that, and we don't really know what it is, I mean, I would suggest that it's God holding the particles together. In verse 1, the Father is pictured creating mass, which comes along with mass, the nuclear force. That's the first type of force. In verse 2, the Holy Spirit is pictured as vibrating among his creation, creating the first gravitational waves. The gravitational force is our second force. And in verse 3, the word of God, who John identifies as Jesus Christ himself, the word of God commands light to be. It says, and light was. Light is involved in the electromagnetic force there's technically four different types of forces, the strong and weak nuclear force, gravitational force, and electromagnetic force. We're going to lump the nuclear forces together. That gives us three of these forces that govern our entire universe. They're all right here in the first three verses. And it seems that the focus of each is a different person of the Trinity. But... We don't need to blow the significance of this out of proportion either. There are other verses that clearly involve each person of the Trinity with other aspects of creation. For instance, John 1 says concerning the word of God, Jesus, All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. Okay, so that clearly involves Christ in all of creation So I'm not pointing this out to exclude any person of the Trinity from any aspect of creation, simply pointing out the emphasis that the passage seems to give to each person of the Trinity. It's something interesting to chew on. And as we've come through these first few verses of the Bible, I hope that you've noticed something. I hope that you've seen how, at its core, the issue of origins is a worldview problem. Whose word are you going to believe? You're going to believe God's word or man's word? It's an issue of foundations, starting points, presuppositions. What do you believe when you approach the issue of origins? When we start out with man's word, we end up twisting God's word to fit the frameworks of man's word. And this leads to all sorts of confusion because they're fundamentally based on different principles. Imagine you're walking through the woods and you come across a stopwatch just laying on the ground. You and your friend are admiring its intricate engravings, the tiny little gears that make it work, and just its complexity. Like, wow, this stopwatch is amazing. And your friend turns to you and asks, how do you think this got here? But you got to explain how it got here by only invoking natural processes. I don't want you mentioning any humans or any intelligent beings. How did that watch get here? Explain it only by natural processes. You'd give him a funny look. Because you know that that's not how it got here. The most obvious explanation has just been thrown out by his preconceptions. Man's word is based on a naturalistic and materialistic view of the universe. That is, that matter is the ultimate reality, and everything can be explained by the natural processes that we currently observe. That worldview excludes God before the question of origins is even asked. And that's why it ends up being impossible to blend a naturalistic worldview with a biblical worldview. And that's what the day-age theory, the gap theory, attempt to do. They blend these worldviews, and they're incompatible with each other. We see the world of science continually changing. Discoveries are being made every year. Man's fallible word changes, but the word of God does not change. It never has, and it never will. Isaiah 40, verse 8, one of my favorites, says, The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. And this is the foundation that we should have as Christians the word of God. If you can trust him for your future salvation, then surely you can find it within yourself to trust him when it comes to your origins, something that's already happened. If you can trust him with your future, you can trust him with your past. And you certainly can trust him. We're going to wrap up our study right there this morning. Please bow your hearts with me in prayer.